Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from Orlando, Florida and New York City. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please enjoy the show. Black music has been promoted through double lens. The lens of whites who are fascinated with the music, but not the people that create the music. So you sit over here, let us take this music and tell you about this music and perform it and market it for the mainstream and you stay silent. And as of the 60s, I think the black power movement had a lot to do with black people saying, it is time for us to take over our musical representation the way the music is written about. You can take my body, you can take my bones, you can take my blood, but not my soul. You can take my body, you can take my bones, you can take my blood, but not my soul. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with banjo player, composer, Rhiannon Giddens. Rhiannon is a Grammy and MacArthur Award-winning artist whose many contributions to contemporary music range from country to opera. Her song, At the Purchaser's Option, comes from a collection of music inspired by slave narratives that she released in 2017. Part of Giddens' stated artistic mission is to, quote, lift up people whose contributions to American musical history have previously been erased, and to work toward a more accurate understanding of the country's musical origins. Also joining us is pioneering ethnomusicologist Dr. Portia Maltzby. Ethnomusicology is an interdisciplinary field which is understood most broadly as the study of music in its cultural context. Dr. Maltzby served as chair of Indiana University's African-American and African Diaspora Studies Department and is perhaps most well known for her landmark book, African-American Music, An Introduction. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is At the Purchaser's Option, Listening for the African Diaspora in American Music. Hello, Rhiannon and Dr. Maltzby. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. <laughs> Rhiannon, I'd like to begin by asking you to talk a little bit about the banjo you play on this song, because I know that in addition to your vast capabilities as a player, you've also become kind of a scholar of the instrument. So could you give us a little introduction to the banjo's origin story? Absolutely. And and I always like to preface, I'm pulling on actual researchers' work, uh, and my job is really to translate it into something that can reach a broader audience. So I'm obsessed with the banjo and the origins of the banjo. And my banjo is a replica of a banjo from 1858. I have a gourd banjo, but the one that I play the most often is is a more stable instrument to travel with. I don't like to travel with my gourd banjo. But what it is is, is a representation of the banjo at a crossroads, uh, crossroads from black culture to white culture, from homemade instrument and sort of ceremonial instrument and cultural instrument to a commercial instrument. So it's it's really kind of sort of paused between all of these two things in this iteration of it, this 1858 version of it. And the sound of it is just so compelling to me when I first picked it up. It, it just really made itself known that it wanted to be a part of these stories that I was com- have been compelled to tell with it. 
when I first heard it, it seems like it's tuned. The tuning is is so distinct from what you hear in like a country music banjo or a bluegrass banjo. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wooden. It's a wooden rim. It's a skinhead. It, it would have been originally gut strings. Of course, I'm using imitation gut. And it is much closer to the original banjos, you know, the banjo coming out of West African mm-hmm. culture and connected to all of those lute instruments. And so mm-hmm. that's another reason why I play it, because when you talk about the banjos an African-American invention, created in the Caribbean, when you say those things, it's one thing. But then when you when you hear those sounds, you're like, oh, okay. It makes a little, you know, you can kind of connect it in a way than if I was playing a modern mm-hmm. metal banjo with the, the super high twang. You know, when I went to the Gambia and studied the Akonting, like the banjo that I'm playing is a lot closer mm-hmm. <laughs> to what that sound is, you know, than, than the modern banjo. So for a lot of reasons, it's become sort of my banjo of choice. And the one in the Gambia is that, I'm assuming that's fretless, and is it tuned as low as yours is? It's, it's tuned to itself. <laughs> it's a, yeah. <laughs> um, it has three strings, two long, one short. It's in a conting. It's a part of a whole family of instruments like the pachundu and other things that are pre-banjo ancestors. But it's just bamboo neck. It's a, it's a skinhead. It's a gourd, hollowed out gourd body. It's a, a, there's a lot more similarities to the banjo that I'm playing than, than say, like the yeah. bluegrass uh, the bluegrass style. Right. And it's got no, it's got like no major thirds or any, any like really default. Well, it, it just depends on the tuning that you use. Like minstrel banjo is tuned. It's just lower, you know? So like I use the gumbo chaff tuning, which they call it off this book of early minstrel tunes, like minstrel tuning quote unquote is actually, it's like a major third and the, the low note is down a step. So you can actually play out of two different oh, keys. Okay. You can play out of C or you can play out of F or D and G, depending on, you know, where you're tuned. So I tune it sometimes there when I'm playing things from that time period, 1850s. But then the music that I write, I have it tuned as a modal tuning, which is a banjo tuning. Modern banjos, people will tune to modal, which means, yes, there's no major or minor third. It's a floating middle note. So it, it has a lot more connection to, I don't know, the emotion that I'm trying to that I'm trying to come up with. Yeah, 100%. And it's well conveyed. Do I have this right that Peggy Seeger played some role in teaching you about the banjo? Peggy Seeger played a big role in just who I am as a musician, as a sort of unapologetic, really strong woman, folk singer, and amazing banjo player. Um, But when I first started writing slave narrative songs, the first one that I wrote was Julie and I hadn't been putting them into the chocolate drop shows. I was still kind of real precious about them. Like, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. how I feel like, what am I doing? I'm not, I don't know, but I have to do these things. And I was at one of her concerts and I told her about them and she said, why don't you get up and, and play this at at the end of the first half? So I did. It's the first time I ever played Julie and I cried at the end. So I got that out of the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she was very encouraging to me. Yeah. I'd like to ask you to tell us about the inspiration of the song. It's it's based on a newspaper ad from that period. Yeah, 1798, um, I think in Rhode Island. I try to mention those things because a lot of times people think the North like is you know out of all of this, but it was happening until it was outlawed. Sure, you know slavery was happening, and this the the thing about at the purchaser's option is that you know these advertisements really represent the quotidian nature of slavery. And and that's Mm. one of the things that I want to impress upon people is like, we talk about it without realizing that for a very, very long time, it was just an average 
way of life for this country. And it was, it was just what people did. Mm -hmm. And yes, there were people who were against it and there were people who were super for it. And then there was a lot of people who just, that's what life was. You know, you saw ads, you saw slave auctions, you saw all of these things. And that was what was really interesting me, like, you know, the banality of evil. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to this particular ad, it just struck me in a certain way because of the phrase, you know, it was like a, a young woman, 22 years of age or whatever. And then it says that she has with her a nine-month-old baby who is at the purchaser's option. And ju mm. just the sort of off-the-cuff nature of that, you know, oh, if you want the baby, you can have it too. You know, and that kind of attitude that was so pervasive, you know, is what I really want to try to get people to understand, like, you know, this is how evil happens a little bit at a time every day. You know, this is how you sell your humanity is like accepting all of these little tiny bits that represent the evilness of selling a human being and separating them mm -hmm. from their their children. And the other the other thing about it, because it's not just enough to think about what is the terribleness of this thing that we went through, all of us, the whole society, you know, and some people lost a lot more than others, you know, in terms of, of mm -hmm. who loses and who wins. But I wanted to focus on how does she get through this mm -hmm. on this young woman? Like, how does she choose to get up every morning? Like, how does she choose mm -hmm. to continue to want to live in a world where none of her, none of her life is hers to control, not even her own children, her own flesh and blood. And cause that's the story of African-American cultures. How do we choose to keep mm -hmm. going? How do we choose to get up the next day and keep moving and keep making a life, remaking a life, remaking a life, remaking a life. Right. So I wanted to focus on that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not lost on me or anyone for that matter. I would imagine that around the time that this is happening, that this callousness is happening, that you would see an ad like that. It's around this time that African culture is being appropriated. A few decades later, the banjo itself is commercialized and you see white people performing it on stage. And so, I mean, there's the co-occurrence of the two. It, there's an obvious injustice and it actually, it calls to mind a book I came across. There was a, a beloved music critic in New York who wrote for the Village Voice named Greg Tate, who passed away in the last couple of years. And he wrote a book called Everything But the Burden, What White People Are Taking from Black Culture. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> you know, I thought of that when I was like learning about your research and what's what went into Freedom Highways, the album that this song's on. Um, so I, I think it's something that's so important to discuss. And it's also what makes this such a great opportunity to have you paired with Dr. Maltzby in conversation because Dr. Maltzby, I came across a lecture that you gave at the Society for Ethnomusicology, not for nothing. It was the Charles Seeger lecture, I believe, when he was, you know, one of the early ethnomusicologists in this country. But the title of that was everybody want to sing my blues, nobody want to live my blues, deconstructing narratives of race, culture, and power in African-American music scholarship. I realize this is about 10 years ago now, but could you tell us a little bit about what you talked about during that lecture? I was motivated early on in my graduate studies to look at the interpretation of African-American music, whose voices were being represented, whose voices were being omitted. And much of the early writings were by Europeans trying to discuss origins and, of course, 
devalue the black creativity in the origins of this music or the African heritage. And that's when I became aware that the stories of the music were about someone else's interpretation and power over the music. So I decided to look more deeply into what is going on here? What is the source for all of this? I soon concluded that it all had to do with power structure. The first publication on African-American music is a book around the spirituals. And the representation, you're probably aware of this, uh, Rhiannon, that the uh, representation were from you know, people who had well meaning to notate the songs of the enslaved. But the notation excluded those nuanced components of the music that cannot be notated but passed through the oral tradition. And that's the big disconnect here between a European and African culture and African-derived cultures, the oral versus the written. And most of this music, from the African perspective, is improvised, it's created on the spot, it has a specific function, and it's created as a community. I mean, individuals create music, but largely big events are centered around community where everyone participates. There is a lead singer, if you want to call a lead singer, the soloist that improvises the melody and the text, and then the rest of the community participants respond with a repeated line of text. So the music has its origins in community. What happened with the so-called investigation of this music, the scholarly investigation, removed it from the community, imposed another point of view that, in essence, changed the function, the meaning, and the performance aesthetic of the music. So the music became the way it was presented and ultimately appropriated and redefined came through the lens of those from a European perspective. So those elements that did not conform to their aesthetic notions or ideal were considered insignificant, wild, barbaric, which is how the music was described. Mm-hmm. And that led to my looking at, okay, what is this process through current times? Same thing. In the studio... The first recordings of music, although was um, supervised by a, an African-American songwriter, Perry Bradford of the blues. Of course, collectors, folklorists were collecting music earlier than the initial field recording. But once again, folklorists tend to look for what's familiar to them. Mm. And what songs are they going to perform? Oh, sing that song, because mm-hmm. that song had something familiar. At the same time, the enslaved and freedmen tended not to perform certain songs in front of whites. Are you going to sing a protest song? Are you going to criticize your master? Are you going to criticize society? Or is the bluesman going to criticize, he's a sharecropper but the owner? Mm -hmm. No, so they're going to sing songs that they think the folklorist or whoever's recording wants to hear. So through this process of non-blacks controlling The recording, the critique of the music comes then another vision of the music, another perspective, a new definition. That essay, that lecture that later expanded and published it as an article really traces the history 
of that pattern of white domination, even through current scholars. The first writings on the blues, popular music, any aspects, were done by white observers, who then took it out of the cultural context, redefined it, reproduced it, and then it became their commodity, something that was different for white people. The banjo, as we spoke of, of the minstrelsy, we're talking about European and European-derived people popularizing that form. Black minstrelsy came later. A minstrel performance came much later. But already it's been redefined, and then the expectations is for black people to do it the way white performers have done it because that's what the white audiences expect. So there's this disconnect in who are you performing it for, who's going to record that history, now, what I found interesting, even with the journalists of the 20th century, their writings about black music, particularly black popular music, the commercial forms now, were inspired by performances of the music, if by black performers, in a white setting, a white venue. So that interpretation, those performers are adapting to that audience. And this one critic I think he was he was looking, following, I think it was Chuck Berry. No, not Chuck. Uh, Fats Domino. I think it was Fats Domino. Nevertheless, he saw he was performing an all-black venue. He had never looked at a witness a performance of a black artist in a black venue. Mm. The first observation was, wow, this is different. They perform differently. They act differently. The repertoire was different. And all of a sudden, he realizes what I've been writing about is not truly representative of this music, this genre of music. So the problem becomes with this appropriation because, again, black people are not controlling the performance of their music, the marketing of the music within this outside of the community itself. So the music becomes detached from the community, redefined, new genre labels assigned to the music, and all of a sudden, black music becomes this mainstream form that's modified and a label American. So what do you have here? Do we have black music? Or do we have black imitators? Uh, you have like Elvis Presley, for example. The media has definitely fostered this notion of how black music should sound what it is, and who it represents. So my research tried to bring about a new way of defining this music within the context of black community life, within the context of the commercial entertainment industry. The music takes on two meanings, and it was during the 60s and 70s that the first layer of African-American scholars began to engage with the scholarly study of the music. And how do you approach that? Well, my approach is looking at it, first of all, through the lens of the people who create the music, interviewing those individuals, getting their stories, interpreting the music through their lens, interpreting the music through black cultural practices. What, what does this really mean? A lot of the music, early music that was recorded, was created and first tested in black clubs. And those early artists took the music from the clubs into the studio and recorded it. And in many instances, the music was created in conjunction with the people, mm -hmm. with the audience. 
very much the way it was done in Africa. So a lot of African practices and approaches to music making have been retained within the context of Black community life. It gets twisted once it moves outside of that, then it becomes something else. An example, even in in the 1960s, I interviewed Rufus Thomas, Mm. and he explained how the song Walking the Dog came about. He said it was a... It was a riff the band was playing during a sign-off to sign off for an intermission to take a break, mm-hmm. and the band doing this, did a horn line, and and then he said this lady was on the dance floor, and she was getting down, you know, doing the moves like like a dog. And I say, oh, do the dog, do the this, and she said, and then the lady got inspired and did another move, and I say, oh, do the hound dog, do the this dog, and then he says, ultimately we ended up creating a song. And he said he didn't think much about it. And he said the next time we performed, the audience said, hey, play that dog song. And he said it was in such demand that we recorded it. And we recorded different versions of it. And at that same time, Rufus Thomas, a dancer himself, understood the relationship between music making and dance. That's another piece that's missing when the music is separated from the culture. So as a result of the popularity of that song among African-Americans now, whites don't have a clue what's happening yet. And then he created a series of dance songs. But my point is that music was inspired by community, let's say, uh, collaborative music making, if I can use that term. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot in clubs. I interviewed a bass player from uh, things of How You Players, and he talked about, he said, I derive my bass lines from the dancers. Mm. He said, I look at what they're doing, and then I get in rhythm with the dancers. And there was an earlier songwriter performer for Atlantic Records who ended up creating the Atlantic sound. And he said that it's very familiarly associated with uh, Ruth Brown, and all of his productions carry that same sound. But anyway, it's based on, like he said, the uh, dances of black teenagers. Atlantic was trying to move from the jazz-oriented recordings to more R&B, mm-hmm. looking at the South as potential for a major, major market. And so he took Jesse Stone, was his name, the black songwriter, former jazz performer, musician, took him South, and they wanted to see what were the Southern blacks into, what were their musical preferences. So they visited Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and took him to look, to come up with ideas. And he said one thing he noticed was that many of the bands, particularly in these rural areas, which is where about 90% of all blacks lived at that time, he said they had a guitar, they didn't have a drummer, and they had a bass. And he said the dancers, very similar to early periods, created their own rhythms with their feet. Mm. They were stomping these rhythms. And he said, I noticed they were doing dump. Da 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 that kind of rhythm on the feet. He said, and I thought about it. Now, if I can take that rhythm and put it in the bass and double it with the horns, I have a hit. Mm-hmm. Because that's a sound that was familiar with the teenagers. He said they were getting away from the business of boogie-woogie, you know, the jump blues coming mm-hmm. from the 40s into the 50s. And most of the musicians at that time, particularly in the studio, were former jazz musicians. And he says, if I can get rid of that, take in the simplicity of how they have adapted the blues for a teenage audience, we have a hit. Mm. And that's exactly what he did. 
So my point is that there are so many stories about the origins of this music that became a commodity, but initially targeted only to black consumers. But it was when it became noticeable and obvious how much money could be made off this music. Now, Mm -hmm. how do we expand the market for this music? Thus comes the shift in the industry to expand profits. Mm. And that's been the history of black music, starting back with the banjo, the fiddle. You know, you start with a tradition, then it's going to get adjusted. Ragtime, good example, ragtime, Mm -hmm. to make it playable by the so-called elite initially. Mm -hmm. So you're reducing, you're making the music uh, simple. The uh, publishing companies simplified the music, simplified the rhythm, so they became more compatible to the taste and abilities of white consumers. So that that's that my research into how do we begin to think about this differently and write about it. And the only way to accomplish that, from my view, was to start from the bottom, look at creativity within black community life. And the music is based on their social practices, their aesthetic ideals. Mm-hmm. There are certain sounds we want to hear. And that's what I noticed in your music, uh, Rhiannon, about uh, the way you deal with the banjo, even how you treat the banjo, and how your vocal inflections. As I I listen to this, I say, oh, yeah, this takes us back home. There is an understanding of the aesthetic that's desired and the aesthetic that's different that those nuances are missing from the broader performance of non-blacks. Also, to add into that, it's another... That's another thing about the banjo that we didn't discuss is that it has no frets, my banjo. Mm -hmm. So it allows all of those in-between notes that you can't notate, which I use with the slides, (laughs) which is what Mm -hmm. basically the the slide guitar is, is basically removing the frets from the guitar to get back to that sound. Um, But I also wanted to say, like in conjunction with what you're saying about the community aspects of the music is that that's also something that's being really discovered in the history of the banjo. Christina Gaddy's new book just came out this year, Well of Souls, um, looking at the banjo as a ceremonial instrument and as a banjo that was connected, as an instrument that was connected to spiritual practices, pan-African practices mm-hmm. in early uh, African diasporic life in the Caribbean in particular, and how the European community around that saw the power of that, like w- using it with the kalenda and all of these sort of the the folks who came over, like having to creolize like already from all the different places in Africa that they were already having to sort of meet and then having to then adjust to being in a new land and then adjusting to the power structures of the European society. But within that, they were holding the space for African spirituality and the banjo was an important part of that. And as the European viewers see this, they see two things. They see power, so they want to get rid of it, you know, so that black people are more easily controlled. And they also see how fascinated white people are with this and how it actually brings everybody together, this, 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 this energy. And so then the banjo is devalued as an instrument and it's taken away and is banned in some places and where it survives, it's okay. It's a dance instrument. Not that that's not powerful, but it, you know, it shifts, it's the purpose Mm -hmm. of it, you know, and and that's, that's been really kind of eye opening for me because I've always felt a very spiritual connection to my banjos, my particularly my early banjos, my handmade banjos, and I've always felt a really strong that that as a thing, you know, and to to have that sort of, I mean, it's not legitimized. Like I, my feeling is enough, but it's kind of great to have 
you know, all, all of this research show that that is indeed something that was a connection for us with the creation of this instrument and how necessary it was. Oh, yeah, the spiritual component was so central in African music making yeah. and basically remains in lesser degrees in the U.S., but as a part of that uh, tradition of music making. The problem here in the U.S. was the so-called separation between the secular and the sacred lifestyle that Africans never really did adhere to. And so that, that's, that, that's where the confusion comes about, okay, can we talk about this spirituality, this dimension of how, what you see it play out in the church. And, and you see that, that performance, if you want to call it that, within the church, how it carries out, trans, transcends uh, that into the secular world. Yeah. And that was, that was always the conflict for African-American musicians, the so-called divide between the sacred and the secular, where in African culture that divide did not exist. Yeah. You listen to African music, you don't know if you, unless you know the language, you don't know if you're listening to secular or sacred. The instrumentation is the same. The vocal approach is the same. It's just a matter of function in the, the context for the performance. And that, that's always been a disconnect with European and American writers on African-American music. They just don't get that. And they're constantly trying to separate these forms and then label then the blues is sinful if it's done in this religious context. Mm -hmm. Whereas in African music, the performance of the music, sacred, sacred, whatever you want to call it, they don't call it that, but it's the same. And the same is true here. So when you hear those instruments sounding bluesy in the church, oh, that's the devil's music. No, it's the performance. And that was always a part of our culture, which is why certain denominations, they say, forget this mainstream practice that's removing us from our roots and whatever. We're going to do it the way we understand it to be done. And a lot of people will question, well, how do you know this African connection? What's missing from a lot of the early writings, or even current ones, is that you don't have to remain in Africa for 500 years uh, to have that connection. Mainly because, like in most cultures, practices are passed down orally. And it goes from generation to generation to generation. Depending upon where you are, like in Louisiana, there's still a lot of African-derived practices today, even among the youth. Now, how do they know it? Because it's a part of a tradition that's been passed down. And uh, it, depending upon the, the concentration of Africans in certain communities, like in, uh, in the Carolinas, the, the Sea Islands, lots of them, they had great reason to continue those, those traditional practices, which they did do, even through the 60s and 70s, and some of them still do. There was no reason not to. But it was, in, it was different environments created, let's say, complications for maintaining certain African practices, but... Those practices were retained in the memory. Are you here? You, we talk about your, your timbre that band of the banjo that you prefer. That same timbre is such a desired sound among African Americans from way back to the present. Technology has done a lot to help musicians create those sounds that they hear, that they want to generate, that traditional Western instruments cannot do. So the synthesizer became very important. Oh, that, like I played Hammond organ, that growling sound. I mean, I can make those sounds, like you say, make that organ holler. I can make it holler, cry, do whatever. And, and it's because that was an aesthetic. Now, I, did not, did I, always, I, I, didn't, I wasn't born understanding that. That's what I heard in church. 
that was a part of how I understood the sound of black music, passed down from generation, generation, generation. And then you see with synthesizers, some funk musicians, they're trying to get those growling sounds. And that was a part of that whole African aesthetic ideal. You know, varying sounds, not the so-called pure sound, but sounds of nature, sounds of emotion, sounds of everyday life. That's a part of the framing of understanding the African-American sound ideal or aesthetic ideal. Which is why I think is so important for us to be involved in this research, our own music, because the embodied nature of knowing that is is an important piece of it. You know, I, I think it's also a challenge to Western research methods is, you know, it's got to be on the paper. It's got to be in the in the the files. It's got to be a tangible thing, whereas embodied practice is tangible. You know, oral mm-hmm. oral tradition is tangible. It's just a different kind of tangibleness. It's just a different way of looking at it, right. but it's not any less important than what those things that have been prized up until, you know, recently. And I think that that is, you know, to your point, we have to be involved in our own history of this music because there are extra things that we feel because we're coming from the culture that we're talking about that I think are important to to be able to notate or whatever, you know, but I think just the embodied nature, hearing you talk about playing that organ and making it do those things, I mean, that's incredibly important in terms of how you understand the music, how you understand, and you see things that then somebody who's coming from outside doesn't see, and it doesn't mean that their research isn't valuable, you know, but it means that it's not a complete picture, and it's not complete right. unless we are also in, in, in there. The way I began to define this in the last few years is that we can interpret African-American music through double lens. One lens represents the, the creation, the performance, the interpretation, the experiential part of the music within the context of black culture. You have your right to the interpretation of this music, sitting in your couch looking at a distance at somebody and then bringing it into play. But let's be clear about what this represents. You're not writing about black music as it is performed and understood and practiced within community life. You're writing about it from your perspective as a non-African American whose frame of reference is very different from the other. And that's fine. But as long as we are clear that you're not giving me the history of black music through these lens of black people, that's right. And, and and that's okay. I don't have a problem. You know, I can talk about Europe. I was trained European classical musician, pianist. I went to college to be a concert pianist, won some competition. And, uh, but I always, I practice both traditions. I grew up in both. So I, it's like you, when I listen to your recordings, I mean, when you perform in your, your opera rendition of your folk and your, you know, you're very versatile. And that's one advantage we have because we do understand multiple, we're bicultural musically, we're bi-musical. We understand more than one tradition. In my field of ethnomusicology, I became involved in other traditions. And I could really see, you know, all of these differences and, hey, it's okay. Am I going to impose my view? My other area that I love was Japanese music. And I remember I was attracted to certain sounds of Japanese music because it reminded me, uh, the sounds were familiar. So I, I love that, it was called the show, it's a mouth organ. When I heard that sound, it had those growly mm-hmm. sounds. 
And when I started analyzing why do I like certain musics over other of other cultures, and then I realized it was something was familiar about those sounds mm. that just touched me. And then there are the other sounds that I learned to appreciate, you know, that are very high. If you're coming from an African-American, African perspective, the preference, the aesthetic preference is the lower sounds. I remember working in the studio recording groups, and that was the hardest task I had with engineers, getting them to take off the highs, take them off too much. I want more bottom. I want mid. Oh, it's going to go in the Don't worry about it. It's not going to distort. I want more mid-range. Take off the highs. Give me more mid-range. That's that's so funny. And and it's it's, it's yeah, it's all an aesthetic based, yeah. and it's okay for European and classical music, and most engineers are trained within those environments. It was funny because I, I used to play fiddle, and now I play viola because I keep wanting to go uh, lower. Oh. I can't, I just can't take the scratching anymore. Yes. It's so funny. But, you know, you're talking about, like, say we're both trained in European art music. I trained in opera, and, and it's interesting because my partner's Italian, and he has a different connection to Italian Art music, especially like the early stuff, because that's what he likes. Like, and, and the language and the culture that it's coming out of, like hearing him talk about it is really interesting. It's like nothing is a blank slate. Everybody has a different connection to their mm-hmm. music, even though he mm-hmm. trained in jazz, like American mm-hmm. jazz, right? Mm-hmm. But like he's got a different connection to both things. And I think it's like you said, recognizing that. It's like knowing what your lens is is the most important thing. And I think that's the hardest thing for white people, if you want to be general, uh, white Americans to kind of realize is that they have a lens, you know, and it, it's just, we just want you to acknowledge that you're, you're looking at this through your lens and that you are not the end all be all <laughs> of, of, you know, of this. And that's, I think that's one of the hardest things that has been for me in my career is that I'm doing music from black culture that has been broken. The link has been broken in terms of like mainstream black culture. We are just not aware of where the banjo and the fiddle are in our own culture and like that long standing black string band tradition that's gone back hundreds of years, like it's pretty much, you know, except for, you know, us carrying it on from Joe Thompson, like it's in, in little kind of isolated pockets here and there, there's no consciousness about it. And so that's been really hard for me, like always going to mostly majority white audiences and then to the black audiences mm-hmm. that I have, it's an educational thing. Mm-hmm. They recognize some of it, you know, they do recognize it, but it's like, it's such a discovery. It's like, it, you know what I mean? So that has been a hard part for me, kind of feeling like I have to, it's a, it's, it feels like a heavy lift. You know what I mean? When I'm t- like, when I, I, I've got an opera that's happening and I put a square dance in it and I'm, I'm teaching the, the black chorus, like I have to start from scratch about, you know, where this comes from, our participation in it. And then when they're in it, they're loving it loving it Absolutely. because it's completely opposite yes. from what they learned in middle school because I'm using a Joe Thompson tune, I'm using how mm-hmm. I learned from him, you know, which mm-hmm. stretches un- unbroken oral tradition back, you know, to the slavery times, like, and they and that's the difference. But it just takes, you know, it's like, it, it's, it feels like a very slow <laughs> process. <laughs> so I, I know that you both traveled to Africa and I would I would love to hear about that what you were able to see firsthand and where you see those connections to how African American music is made here um wow you want to go first I guess I can <laughs> I probably went first <laughs> but uh, I think it, it was a, a really revealing experience for me and I think I was somewhat prepared now this was unusual in graduate school in the PhD program University of Wisconsin 
I petitioned for an external minor that I combined African-American and African studies and sociology. It was perfect for me. In fact, that experience influenced the way I really began to write about and think about music, other than James Brown. I was so taken by him. I saw him live twice when I was a teenager. He performed in Orlando at the clubs, and every now and then he would do a matinee for the kids. And I saw him twice, and I was so mesmerized. He was dressed in the whole, you know, like he was doing a performance for pay. And uh, that's when I began to look at the relationship between music, sound, movement, the church, everything he was doing. I'm thinking, wow, this is something else. So I began to be kind of critical, trying to put bring perspective to this entire show I was seeing. His rhythmic component in his music, that drive, comes from his being a drummer. That's when I began to understand the relationship between drummers and those who became our singers and everything else because they brought their drumming experience to the play, the aesthetic of drumming. And then his other part was just in the church. And then he was a dancer. That was the other piece there. He was prior to being the James Brown and being in bands, he was a dancer and he was a drummer. So when I went to Africa, I'm now able to look at this in with some informed lens. And the first thing I'm seeing is I grew up in Orlando, Florida, era strict segregation. All black surroundings, everything, black banks. I had no white services while I was in Florida. My dentist, my doctors, our attorney, all black people. And so when I went to, I went to Ghana, Nigeria, in, in Republic of Benin now, and I thought, man, I saw my community. That was really what I saw, my community. And then I could see further my experience with the James Brown show of all the kaleidoscope of the arts, as I like to describe it, the music, the dance, the costumes, the everything. I saw all of that. I saw the values of the people. And I remember one time I walked several miles to get to what I thought was a cleaners, dry cleaners. And I got there and I had my little thing and I, and I didn't see anyone. And I saw a bell. I rang the bell, and then nobody answered, and I rang it again, and this lady rose up, and then she she had been, she had was sleeping. And then she looked at me like, okay, what do you want? <laughs> and I said, I have these clothes, and she said, finish, finish. What I learned was that how you value social time and time to rest. It's not always mm. about business, business, business. So when I went to the bank, it might have taken me Four or five hours to do one small thing because everybody was in dialogue with each other. It was a community. They were discussing. They were, you know, and so I got to see where our values that were being criticized, you know, in the U.S. as being with backwards or whatever. Whatever we did that was different from Europeans, a European system, a way of thinking about behavior, et cetera. That's what I really took away. And, of course, getting into the music. That's when I really began to understand issues of aesthetics. And then one of the first ethnomusicologists was African, and he wrote on African music. And I learned a lot from him and his books. He was at UCLA, but I got to know him very well. What was his name? Uh, Nkatia, Kawaba Nkatia. He died about five or six years ago. He's from Ghana. Hmm. Just like there weren't any African-Americans doing African-American music at that time, there weren't any Africans doing African music. And, of course, I gravitated to what he had to say and how he interpreted the African uh, musical traditions and culture. 
as I did. I was fortunate to have, as my mind, I had not one white professor in my minor area in the PhD program. Now, that's rare. Mm -hmm. So that's what I got out of my experience in Africa. I really began to understand African-American music making, which is how I summarize this, this whole the relationship, that African-Americans create music, interpret music, perform music, and experience music from an African frame of reference. And I got that from seeing it myself and also from the theoretical readings about the relationship between African and African-American music. Yeah, I had a bit of a different... <laughs> A different lead up, because okay. um, I, you know, I just have a music degree. I don't have any, and that's a performance degree. So no further mm -hmm. degrees. I haven't done anything in African American studies other than just all of my the books that I have and I read. And when I went over, it was really I wanted to study the accounting. I had a connection from the Black Banjo Gathering of 2005, so I went to the Gambia and to, into Senegal for a little bit. But the musicians that I learned from were Senegalese, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the experience of the music was really incredible, and I learned a lot about what's important in that music and what isn't, mm -hmm. you know. Um, mm -hmm. Is the key important? No. Is what it's, you know, what it's tuned to the relationship between the, the, the strings important? Yes. Like, it, it's just a different way of looking at it and l different way of learning, and that was really incredible for me. I had a very hard time. I was with a group of white American musicians who were also there, and so I was the only black American. So it was, it was either people who lived there, you know, who were, who were Gambian or white Americans. And mm -hmm. so I felt very much, um, kind of confused. It was, you know, I got called to Bob all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm mixed, <laughs> you know, I'm mixed mm -hmm. and I'm light as heck. And so I really didn't know what to do with it. And, I think I'm still processing it. It's been like, <laughs> like 15 <laughs> years. Um, but I was really glad that I went because the the instrument, I was like, oh, my God, this right hand is exactly the same as what I've been doing on my banjo. You know, like there was a visceral connection to this ancient, like what they call claw hammer now, frailing or whatever mm -hmm. technique that goes all the way back to, you know, West Africa, which was really important. But I also met somebody who had a minstrel banjo there. And that's the first time I'd ever mm -hmm. heard that banjo. And I went... W w play that again, <laughs> like this African? The, African? No, he was he was the white the one of the white Americans. He had brought his banjo over, and he's a he's into he's into the early banjo music. And I was like that sound. For me, I realized I I needed to go back to the Caribbean. Going to Africa was really important, but like where my my heart lay was in the creation of the banjo. What came before was really super important, but I realized that. You know, as a Creole person myself, I am a mix, you know, mm -hmm. like white, red and black. And that's 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 who I am. So I'm drawn to that moment of acculturation, of of creolization, of syncretization. So it was kind of interesting, like that that was my future was kind of set in Africa, but like looking back mm -hmm. over the ocean mm -hmm. to the Caribbean. So it was a really mm -hmm. interesting experience. I mean, I love, I'd love to go back, but um, it was. Yeah. It's confusing on a lot of levels. <laughs> but, you know, there was one thing that I didn't say that I also take with me is the regenerative nature of African-American music and dance. You know, that like that bounce that's like in all in, in our mm -hmm. dances and in our music and is the thing like when I was trying to teach the the chorus of the L.A. opera, um, you know, this one of the pieces from my opera, Omar, and the chorus master and watched me work with them. And I started going... 
Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of offbeat thing, body. right? Mm-hmm. And moving my body and showing the offbeat. And then when he was working with him, he started clapping the offbeat, but it was like, <laughs> like super, you know, and he would laugh about it. Like, and I was like, do you notice that my offbeat is like a hair after mm-hmm. yours? It's like mm-hmm. there's a relaxation to it that you can't notate. And I noticed that when I was in Africa. When I was watching the the dance troupe that was, you know, we were learning from and just and then also the dances that go on all night and people just dancing and singing. And there's this idea that the music keeps you alive and it keeps you moving. And I think that's one of the things that is so attractive to the white culture that has become so dominant in America, not because it didn't exist in Europe, but because they stamped it out before they got to the to Americas. When you look at the indigeneity of you know, Irish culture or of Welsh culture, of different cultures that were actually stamped out by the dominant culture over there before mm-hmm. people came over, you know, of the Protestant church in Germany or whatever. I think there's a soul that is in every culture is stamped out in some places and that it didn't in Africa. And like, so people came with that over where they were brought over with that, that deep relationship to music and dance and how it is for survival. It is as breathing. It's like air. It's like water. It is just what you do. And that was something that was really impressed upon me when I was there in a really sort of visceral way. I like to say, make one last comment as I'm thinking about it. And that is the, uh, you know, I'm often asked about the, well, what about African-Americans playing European instruments? And I'm saying, but think about how they play them again. This is our bi-musicality. And what we do, you see it in jazz, you see it in blues. We can take a European instrument and, as I say, Africanize it. And basically what the musicians do, because they, they have these sounds, these timbres that they want to reproduce, and they'll take those instruments and then they will reinterpret them. They would adapt them to what they need the instruments to do, which is why I take the, the plungers in jazz. Duke Ellington was mm-hmm. very famous for these pieces that just are growl. I mean, they're growling. And that was a new invention. Black folks start putting plungers, using them as mutes. And then, of course, what happens? The commercialization of a mute. So you have these mutes. So, again, that was the desire to create this sound, this desired sound on Western instruments. Same thing you mentioned earlier, the slide, mm-hmm. because now we've got the frets. And so how do you generate those sounds? The bottleneck guitar. And then what happened from the bottleneck? The slide was introduced. Early blues performances break a bottleneck and run the bottleneck up and down the strings. And the same thing, you know, with the, uh, the armature. I'm sure you notice in Africa, these instruments, some of them had like these big horns. That the horns are real low, real low, no holes. But it's all amateur. And so I saw that. So what the black musicians do, they start altering the sound through manipulating the amateur or altering the sound of strings, you know, just by bending, by physically changing. And so it doesn't matter the source. What's important is what do you do with that instrument? How do you interpret that instrument and what informs your performance on that instrument? And it always goes back to your own cultural heritage. When I was teaching, it reinforced this by having students look at their own culture. I think if you start with yourself, then you're more open to see how this may apply to another culture. So one of the first assignments, and I put them in groups based on their background so they can have uh, conversations beyond themselves. The first assignment is to, I want you to engage with your mother, your grandmother, or your great-grandmother. And I want you to tell me 
What traditions, because none of you were born here. If you were a Native American, African-American brought here, you're not from here. So you brought something with you. I want to know what is it that you brought. And I also want to know what were the conditions that influenced changes in what you brought. That was very revealing for them, you know, for the students. And they shared this background with those that I put in their groups. And even down to, you know, language, we bought German. But why did you stop speaking German? Because of the whole conflict, they didn't want anybody to know they were from Germany, uh, the Jews, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different. And so then we talked about, well, who kept your tradition alive? Where my grandmother lived with us, so we learned to cook from her. So the point is, they began to see what I call a cultural process rather than a racial process. And once we understand culture, that is learned behavior, it is passed on generations and generations until there are disruptions for whatever the reasons. Mm. So let us figure out what were those reasons for the disruption. So therefore, we can begin to appreciate uh, when were the disruptions in African-American culture when we, we shifted from being Africans in America to African-Americans. It had to do with the, the outlawing of the importation of slaves. Africans as enslaved, outlawing that, although some continued, or what caused for the shift in in instruments? Well, the instruments were no longer coming from Africa. Then this legislation outlawed the playing of loud instruments, drums and horns, that they used to make from local materials, the trees and whatever. And so we start looking at what led to these changes, and then ultimately the final straw was the introduction of Christianity. But Africans did not just accept, because I talk about Africans in America until the 1800s with the introduction of Christianity and all these other factors that I just outlined. And at that point, then slowly the culture became an African-American culture that had to do with adapting to those changes. But still the memory of being African was continued to pass down. Because how are you going to start doing something different when you don't know what that different thing is? So that was the only other thing I wanted to mention, that uh, with instruments and uh, and whatever we did, it was always an adaptation. Are you good with the chitlins? We're going to make something out of it. You know, the leftover remains of animals. We're going to apply our African seasoning, our African way of boiling until we have something that tastes good. Then all of a sudden it becomes a delicacy for mainstream America. Yep. It costs more money to buy it when we used to get it free. <laughs> <laughs> it was enjoy engaging. I may have to get in touch with you at some point. Uh, yes, please. If you don't mind. I would yeah. love that. Your work is amazing, and, and it's been really an honor to share the, this podcast with you. Thank you. Check out Rhiannon's first picture book, Build a House, on Candlewick Press, and see her live at Carnegie Hall in January and March of 2023. Or see her opera Omar at the Boston Lyric Opera in May. For more information on Dr. Maltzby's work, please visit folklore.indiana.edu. And you can purchase her custom-designed timeline of African-American music t-shirt at clubhouse-global.com shop. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Social media manager is Bailey Constis. And digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Chris Villapeg at Songloft and Randy Meese at Sweet Audio for on-site recording. If you liked today's episode, 
please tell a friend about the show and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>